Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this next episode of the Survivor Stories series, we speak with Caitlin, a survivor of domestic violence. Caitlin starts her story by sharing the signs of abuse she noticed in her relationship and the abuser tactics that her ex-husband used to coercively control her and her children. Um, I can tell you that for the first five years, I thought the relationship was amazing and great. Um, We were best friends and building a dream and a life together. And the abuse actually started after my son was born. And I've heard that a lot, that sometimes abuse doesn't start until there's a pregnancy or until after the child is born. And for me, it was after the child was born. Um, so I really didn't have a lot of red flags. And I don't know if that's a sociopath uh, thing where... You know, it was all pre-planned. I don't know. Um, I'm thinking at this point, perhaps. So after my son was born, that's when the abuse started. And he started calling me an idiot. And I didn't know what I was doing. If I um, put a diaper on my son, he would refasten the diaper to make me feel that I hadn't done it properly. Um it turned into more personal attacks of, you know, you're a B, you're a C, you are worthless, you don't deserve to exist, everything would be fine if you were just gone. He threatened to kidnap my son. Um, he would threaten to call, he, he, had, he would say when I get home, from say the grocery store, he would say, oh, I called CPS while you were gone. They're coming to take the kids. And I just, I've never dealt with anything like this before. So when he would say things like that, I thought, well, is that real? Can you just call CPS and say, come take my kid and they'll come take them? I really didn't know. I'd never dealt with anything like that before in my life. Um, So, um, at first I thought, well, he has some sort of mental illness because he was a great guy for years prior to this. So he must need mental health help. I want to help him. Let's get him back on track. There must be some sort of stress with having a child. I don't know. Um, so I actually set up an appointment with him with this for him with a psychiatrist and he agreed to go and he did go once and then he went again with me because I had met privately with the psychiatrist explaining what was going on and the psychiatrist said well can you come back with him and say these things in front of him and I didn't want to but I did I didn't know what other option there was, but then he refused to return. 
So just like many women in the beginning, they're like, oh, he needs help. I need to help him. That's what I thought. Um, so that's what I did. I didn't want to break up the family. I just had a child with this person. He was my best friend. We had, you know, built a life together for five years. And so I just, that was my first step was that I need to get him help. He needs help. I didn't take it, you know, personally that he was calling me all these names. I just thought it was something that was wrong with him that he needed help for. I mean, it was already concerning to me that he was saying he was going to kidnap him, that everything would be fine if I didn't exist, um, that he was calling CPS to take the child. I mean, those things were concerning. Those are abusive tactics that I now I know as I've done research and learned much more about abuse and and the type of things that they say and what they do to cause fear and to... Um, make you feel less than I learned that those are very common tactics but on top of that he had other behaviors that I thought were concerning where he would believe that he could um, <laughs> smell mold he thought he was smelling mold and he would rant for hours about that the whole house was going to have to be torn down and we were going to rebuild and um so he always had these, uh, it sounds so crazy. This sounds so crazy. And this is what it was to me too. But I just thought, well, I need to help this person. So he had a lot of smell issues. Um, he, he just, there was an, a, a point where he thought that he had come in contact with poison ivy. And so he was freaking out that the entire house needed to be scrubbed down because the poison ivy was going to be in contact with everything and everyone. Um, I know this sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. And that's what it was. And that's why I thought I needed to get him help. So I tried. Um, so I contacted a um, organization with mental health. I think it was called NAMI, N-A-M-I, N-A-M-I, I think. Um, I contacted them. I went to support groups with them. I contacted the police. I would go to the police station and ask them, hey, this is what's happening in my home. Um, he's threatening to other things he would do is say he's going to burn the house down that he's going to commit suicide because there was no other way out, that he was going to kidnap the kids, that there was mold in the house. He had to tear it down and rebuild it. I mean, all kinds of crazy things that I thought, even though there was abuse, I thought, well, it must be some sort of mental psychotic break, some sort of mental illness that if he gets help for that, the abuse will stop. But now looking back, I think, think that he used that as a tactic to scare me because I was so unresponsive to his abuse um, that he maybe just did that in order to try to escalate the scare tactics. I don't know. But I did contact police and the first woman I talked to at a police station told me, well, that's his place of residence. He can say or do whatever he wants. 
And so I didn't think initially that the police could help me. She said, unless there's a bruise on your body or there's damage to your property, there's really nothing we can do, which is true because unless they've done something, at least something about, there's really nothing they can do. So emotional, psychological abuse, if it's just words in the United States, um, at this time, there is no law that says that they um, can do anything to help you. Expecting a child is a key risk factor for domestic violence beginning or escalating. In other words, violence often starts or escalates during pregnancy. We, uh, when we got together, we planned to have a family. We decided that that was a great, exciting thing for both of us. We both wanted that. And um, we did, you know, lots of things, working and um, getting a home and a good school district and doing all of these things to uh, raise a great family and have a great time. That was the plan, supposedly. And for 18 months, we tried to get pregnant and it didn't work. So after 18 months, we um, went to a fertility doctor that a friend of mine had gone to. And we used uh, only one simple procedure called an IUI. Um, And that one procedure made it happen. I was able to get pregnant with my son. So up until that point, we had both worked really hard to get pregnant with our first son. And it's very strange that after he was born, that my husband decided to take a different turn and decide that I was a horrible mother, a horrible person, evil, um, never wanted kids, didn't, I mean, it just, it, the whole thing turned. And I, I found out that this is common either with pregnancy or birth. So my, my story is not uncommon. Um, I just don't know that many people talk about it. And after my son was born, I didn't think I had to worry about getting pregnant again. <laughs> but after he was born and my husband was so distraught, I thought maybe one of the things um, that could make it better is to try to have intimacy with him. And so we did, and somehow I got pregnant with another child within four months. So after my son was born four months later, I was pregnant again, not thinking that it was possible. After a woman gives birth, it is not uncommon for her partner to become jealous and discourage breastfeeding. Breastfeeding can be a source or a trigger of conflict or an escalation of violence. Um... He was obviously irate after Max was born. He started calling me an idiot and every other name. He hated the fact that I was breastfeeding. I don't know why. Um, He would put his hand on my head and pretend that he was going to snap my neck um, to let me know that he physically could kill me. Um, He... There was a lot of 
there was hours of rants of just him talking about horrible things and how horrible I was and what a horrible person I was, what a horrible mother I was, that I could do nothing right, that I was an idiot, that he was going to kidnap the kids, that he was going to throw me in jail because it was better than dead, um, that he was going to take me down, that the house that I had bought, because I had bought the house, um, by myself for the kids in the school district. I was the one with the money and the means to purchase the home. He said that he would, uh, my home would be gone, that my bank accounts would be gone, that um, just that he was going to do me in. I, I mean, his words were, I will take you down. And I had no idea why he was saying that because it would just be at the home having dinner with the children it would just be dinner time and he would just start ranting and if I tried to ask him what exactly are you upset about right now he would say I actually because I journaled and videoed a lot of this so I have it's not just on my memory. I actually have a journal and a video and videos of this. So he would say, you know, stop making salads. Like that was his big reason for why he was going to kidnap the kids and have me thrown in jail because he didn't like that I was salads. Um, so to me, he had a mental illness, but apparently he does not. And if he does, it's undiagnosed, and he's been able to uh, charm everyone, therapists and psychologists around him, to believe that he is fine. I don't know. My story is crazy. It really is. But I don't think it's different. I think a lot of women have dealt with these type of words. I think a lot of women have dealt with men that say, you're an idiot, you're horrible, you're a horrible mother, you're a horrible person, you're this and you're that and everything you do is wrong and I'm going to have you thrown in jail and, you know, all kinds of threats that women have to listen to and what do they do if they report it to someone? What happens when they report it to someone? Because as far as I know, Reporting that kind of abuse, if the person who said those things to you is very presentable in public and in court, then they don't believe the person that lived with them. Because when they meet him, he seems great and loving and able to communicate but behind closed doors is where these things happen and there's only one person that can tell someone about it but how do you tell someone about it when you know that person will be presentable in front of the person you told
So I had videos to prove the abuse and the rants and the talking. However, uh, what they wrote in the court document was, we saw the videos. It was corroborated that he was abusive. However, he testified that he didn't mean it. They also said that I provoked it. They also said that I lied about it. So I don't know how those two things can exist. How can I both lie about it and say that it happened, but I provoked it and then say it happened and you provoked it, but he said he didn't mean it. It's ridiculous to me. A common abuser tactic is victim blaming or gaslighting, which is a tactic in which the abuser, in order to gain more power, makes the victim question her reality. So because of his behavior that included things about smelling mold and uh, just other behaviors that seem to be outside of abuse that seem to be maybe more than, um, and I wanted to get him help, I... Um, part of the restraining order was that he would have to meet with a psychiatrist and that I would have participation in that. And I would show videos of his behavior and talk about his behavior. That was part of the restraining order with the court. He avoided that by finding someone, a therapist, not a psychiatrist, a therapist that was supposedly going to find him a psychiatrist um, to fulfill the court order. But she met with him a few times, me being the nice person that I am. She asked, she said, well, can I meet with him while we wait for a psychiatrist? And I said, Yes, I wanted him to have someone to talk to. I really, truly thought there was something wrong with him. I said, yes, meet with him while we wait to find a psychiatrist to fulfill this court order. Well, before he found a psychiatrist, um, he had charmed her to believe that he was fine, that he was a great person, and that Uh, she wrote a letter to the court testifying that he was a kind, gentle, loving father and husband and that whatever his wife was saying must be wrong because he was so great. I think, I don't think I know the court does not realize that there are sociopaths. There are people. We've seen them in the news, the Watts and uh, other people that we know that can put on a public persona, that they are a great, amazing, kind person, and that behind closed doors, there's something else. 
So for this therapist to write this letter for the court to say that he was an amazing, kind, gentle, loving father and husband is wrong, not only in that she was not following the court order, that he was to meet with a psychiatrist with my input and to show the videos and discuss behavior, but that she just didn't talk to me at all. She just thought, well, I see this person in front of me and he seems great, but most abusers do. Most abusers appear in public to be great people. I think society has learned that. Hopefully in 2018, we've realized that people can be successful, business people appear to be loving, responsible, amazing people, but that doesn't mean that's who they are behind closed doors when they are with their family and they you know, believe that they have control and power and uh, over these people and can take it out on them. Having a restraining order doesn't necessarily stop the abuse. In fact, in the Supreme Court case, Castle Rock versus Gonzalez, Justice Scalia said, quote, Police discretion has long coexisted with apparently mandatory protection orders, unquote, effectively rendering temporary protection orders ineffective and unenforceable. So the abuse started when my son was born and he would talk about kidnapping and that everything would be fine as long as I didn't exist. Um, He threatened that he had called CPS to come take our son. I mean, it was just, I never, I've never in my life had the police involved in my life. And this was, this was disorienting that, this is the direction I would have to take. Um, I'm just going to add, there was one night in the beginning when he, after I put, after I put my son to bed, my husband left the front door open and just took off walking with no shoes on. And I didn't know what was going on. This was just part of his weird behavior that he would do. I think it was just to try to scare me. Or to, since he seems to be in control of himself and not have a mental illness, as far as we know, uh, if he doesn't have a mental illness, then he was doing this on purpose to um, disorient me, to scare me. He took off with the door front door op- wide open and just took off. And when he came back, I said, "What's going on? Are you okay?" And he's like, "Oh, no, I'm just." I'm out here. I'm going to, I'm going to try to get arrested. Okay. That's interesting. So a friend of mine, uh, told me, cause I called her, I said, I don't know what's going on. This is his behavior. She said, lock the door and call the police. And at that point I wasn't ready to do that because it's, this was the beginning and I thought he needed help. I loved him. He was the father of my children. We worked towards having a family together. Why would I call the police on him? That would start a whole really big thing. And I wanted to protect him like a lot of women do. Now that I have researched and know that's what we do. So I didn't do anything. I just worked with it. Um, but it escalated from there. It got worse. Um, 
Two years after that, it just kept escalating. He went to a psychiatrist. He stopped going. He went to a psychologist. He stopped going. Um, and his abuse became more um, physical with throwing things at me, kicking things into me, pushing me, shoving me, twisting my arm. He punched a hole in the wall. And I just thought, this is it. I can't. You are not safe to be around me. But more importantly, you are not safe to have two little children. I can't save all three of us against you. So that's when I got the restraining order. But I was in the reports from the family court. It uh, states that, well, I must not have been very afraid of him since I didn't do X, Y, and Z. Since I didn't call the police at this point, I must not have been that afraid. And the the court psychologist said, well, I think she's lying. Um, I think she provoked it. The judge wrote that although it's corroborated that I saw a video of his abuse, he testified that he didn't mean it. So it was all excused and dismissed. And he was granted 50-50 custody, which I understand is actually a win because there's so many women that when they report abuse, they, they lose custody and 100% custody is given to the abuser. And that's why I talk about this today. Um, I had one lawyer from Peace Over Violence um, talk to me when I was looking for advice. And I told her I needed to get a restraining order because we weren't safe. And every day was a life in fear. And she told me that after I get the restraining order, that the abuse doesn't stop. And I will never forget those words because I didn't believe her. I'm like, what do you mean the abuse doesn't stop? I get a restraining order. He can't abuse us anymore. Right? She's like, the abuse doesn't stop. And I didn't get what that meant. But now I know because I just got four messages from him this weekend that are just mean and not necessary. So he will still be able to contact me and attack me and tell me that everything I do is wrong and tell me that I'm this or tell me that I'm that because he has access to me because we have 50-50 custody. So that lawyer at Peace Over Violence was correct that the abuse doesn't stop because even in getting a restraining order and trying to protect yourself and your kids, most oftentimes either the custody goes to the abuser or if you're lucky enough to get at least 50-50, you still have to co-parent with this person who's abusive. While 50-50 shared physical and or legal custody may be desirable in most healthy relationships, presumptive shared parenting is considered by most advocates for domestic violence survivors as dangerous for victims and their children. 
So in the beginning, when I got the restraining order, he was allowed to see the kids for one hour, two times a week, but he had to be supervised. That was the original court order. So for the first year, I think it was that he could see the kids for one hour, twice a week, but it had to be supervised and he had to pay for the supervision. Um, as he took me to court, um, to fight for custody. Now I want to say that almost on a daily basis, he would tell me, I don't want these kids. I told you I didn't want kids. I don't want to be Mr. Mom. I want nothing to do with this. He said that repeatedly and I have it on video that he would say this to me on pretty much a daily basis. However, as I said, the court responded with, well, he testified he didn't really mean that. Um, so in the beginning, he could see the kids for one hour, supervised. When we went back to court, he asked the judge, you know, I want more time with my kids. And the judge said, the judge was on my side at this point. Um, judges changed later, just FYI. Um, but the judge said, okay, great. You want to see your kids more? Okay. But you'll be supervised. So he was allowed to see the kids for a few hours twice a week, but he still had to have someone there to supervise the visitation. And they tried to say, well, she needs me. They tried to say that I needed to pay half of that. And the judge said, no, she doesn't. Your behavior was your behavior. You need to be supervised. If you want to see your kids more, you will pay for it. So they made him pay for it. Um, through the supervised visitations, you know, obviously abusers, we, we already, to me, this is common knowledge. If anybody knows anything about abuse, that abusers don't abuse in front of others for the most part. They don't do it in public. They don't do it in front of other people. They do it behind closed doors. So the court was like, well, he didn't abuse the children in front of the supervisor. And to me, I was like, well, no kidding, he didn't. Of course he didn't. He's not going to be abusive in front of someone that can call him out for it or do something about it. Of course he didn't. But to them, they just thought, well, see, he's fine. He's not abusive to the children at all. We watched him. <laughs> not realizing that domestic violence is what happens behind closed doors. That's so obvious to me. And it was so frustrating that the court doesn't get that. Or therapist or anybody. They need to be educated on how domestic violence works. So then he was granted a visitation with the kids without supervision because he did so good while he was on supervision. And then it just escalated into having them overnight. And by the time they were only four and three years old, um, we had a new judge that came in. A new judge took over. Apparently every two years in L.A., a new judge steps in. 
I didn't know this. So they rotate judges. So because our court case took about two years, um, near the end of our court case, a new judge stepped in, took over, not knowing anything previously, and threw everything out and granted him 50-50 custody. No supervision. And that was the end. That was the end of the story. Many courts have domestic violence exceptions to presumptive shared parenting laws. Yet when they fail to recognize abuse, the survivor and children are at risk of being coercively controlled. It is not possible to co-parent with an abuser whose coercive control is by definition an attempt to restrict your liberty and doesn't recognize your equality, despite a court mandate. In the beginning, the kids, even when it was just visitation or he was coming to pick them up, um, the kids didn't want to go. And it's so hard when kids are so little. There, w- there was a time, actually, the kids were only, I'm going to say, going on three and two. And there were some times with the supervisor that my son refused to go. And the supervisor said, I can't, I can't make him go. She's like, you just have to take him back. I'll just take the younger one, my daughter. I'll just take her. So I would take my oldest um, son home and he would skip visitation because he clearly didn't want to go. And then they would make my younger daughter go. She was less than two. I had asked for in the court order, I had asked for um, to exchange children at the police station. That would make me feel better. To not have him come to my house or me not go to his house, I felt safer if we had to do the exchange at the police station. But the judge didn't grant that. She granted everything he wanted, and she granted nothing that I asked for. So now I have to see my abuser several times a week in exchanging the kids. But they, um, my son did have uh, behavioral problems at school through kindergarten and first grade. He seems to be doing better now. Um, I worry for my daughter um, mostly um, just because I think, you know, he, like he, my, my abuser laughed at me one time and said, I have this on video as well. He laughed and said, Oh, you think you have rights. So he's not very pro woman as he had sold me on that he was when I met him. So he seems to be anti-woman when he sold me on the premise that he was very pro-strong women. Um, There were times when uh, my son would not want to get in the car with my husband. He would come in my house and hide and cry and scream and say he didn't want to go. And that's when my ex would threaten me with that he's going to take me to court for full custody because he blamed me for them not wanting to go to his house. Um, Currently, things seem to be okay. I 
I know that as soon as 50-50 custody was granted, he had a girlfriend move in with him. I don't know how long he'd known her, but when court was done and 50-50 was granted, she was moving in. So I know he has help and the kids seem to like her. So I, I hope the best. It's really, it's really hard when your kids are four. When, first of all, the whole thing was hard. There, a child is born and, it, and there's abuse. You think you can handle it. It's not that big of a deal. I can, we can fix this. It's going to be okay. A second child is born. Some days are okay. Some days are not. And then the abuse escalates more and more physical. It's more and more towards the kids. He's, he's tossing them into chairs. He's pushing them around. He's more aggressive with me. He's punching holes in the wall. So I finally just decided after two years, he's not safe. It's getting worse. I can't help this. I have to do something. And I did. And the most frustrating part is that to be abused and to be strong enough and stand up for yourself and have the confidence and to do something and say something and then have the system tell you that you're lying or you provoked it and okay, it's corroborated that this happened, but he testified that he didn't mean it gives me a loss of hope in humanity. Honestly, (laughs) gave me a loss of hope in humanity. It's been a long road. For many survivors, the road to healing may include education on the causes of violence and abuse and engaging in advocacy work to prevent it. I luckily had uh, one friend that I decided to tell. I mean, I had many friends. I don't want to act like I had one friend. (laughs) I had more than one friend, but I had one friend that after the birth of my son, I felt that I could go to about this. Um, she is a very confident woman who, um, had children of her own and she works with, um, teenage girls in building confidence and, um, awareness of like healthy relationships and things like this. Um, I didn't even know that at the time actually, but I, she was the person that I went to. I had one friend that I went to and she me all the way through. She even came to court for me. She was never able to testify because so many times we would go to court and they wouldn't have time for us, which was a huge uh, expense to pay for all the forms to be filled out and pay for the lawyer to be there and spend hours there um, and then to not be seen. So she came every single time to be there for me. So, and, and I currently have uh, really good friends that are very supportive, thankfully. Um, my family is very supportive. I think it helps, honestly, the fact that I have videos. 
And I know that domestic violence programs encourage people now in, in 2018, they encourage domestic violence victims to record, journal, and all of those things. And they have apps for them. And I was doing it at a time where that wasn't there. This was in 2000. It started in 2011 is when it started. And I just recorded it on my own. And it was dismissed. I was... Thankfully, family and friends have been very supportive. Um, Domestic violence organizations, I'm going to say that every time I would have like 20 minutes free where he wouldn't be around and I wouldn't be caught, it would be hard because a lot of the domestic violence numbers that you call, they're just referrals to other places. And so you have 20 minutes free, the kids are napping, he's gone for a minute, you can do something and all it is is referrals to other places to call. It's it, There is no buck stops here kind of program, which is very frustrating. But I want to say that with the videos that I had and the journals, um, I was, because when he was abusive, I didn't respond. I didn't come back to be abusive to him. I was questioned in the court documents. It is they question me, why is she so calm? Why is she quiet? They're not questioning, why is he abusive? Why is he doing and saying these things to her? The question was, why is she not responding? Why is she quiet? And that to them was questionable. That's amazing to me. I thought it meant I was centered and in control of my emotions and my reactions. But to them, the woman being unresponsive or quiet was the question. Not why is he doing this? Why is he saying this? The question was, why is she so quiet while he's doing this to her? That's amazing to me. Caitlin offers some upstander tips or ways in which you can help the survivors in your life. Okay, so the initial restraining order I got myself, and I went through, um, there's a free help with lawyers at the courthouses that'll help you fill out the forms. The forms are long. There's a lot of paper to fill out to get a restraining order. So I feel for the women who can't get away or their location is being tracked, there's no way you can get to a courthouse to get help to obtain information on how to even get a restraining order. I, I, I don't know how some women get away, honestly. So I would say I was going to the gym for an hour workout. Instead, I would drive to the courthouse to get help on what a restraining order is about, how to get it, what it means, what the process is. I didn't know anything. So I did that with my free time that I was allowed out of the house. And once the final restraining order was in place with my lawyer, he added in the restraining order that 
my abuser needed to see a psychiatrist and that he needed to have uh, my input and to see my videos of behavior because my lawyer had seen the videos. So he knew he was like, this is important. This somebody needs to see this. However, through the court process, my abuser was able to charm the first therapist he met with that was supposed to be just uh, while we waited for a psychiatrist. And she wrote a letter to the court saying how kind and wonderful and gentle he was without meeting me. So it didn't fulfill the court order. And then um, they did find a psychiatrist that he could meet with. But that psychiatrist never met with me either. And he also wrote a a letter to the court um, about, I don't know if he knew about the court order. He may not have. But he wrote a letter to the court saying what a wonderful person my abuser was. And that his only problem was that he had marital problems. That was his diagnosis. So nobody fulfilled the court order. It was never fulfilled. And after like a year to a year and a half of going to court and never getting anything settled, I agreed to pay a court-appointed psychologist that my abuser um, demanded that I also see. So we both saw my lawyers like, who cares? It'll be fine. Just meet with them. So we finally both met with a psychologist and I told the psychologist about his behaviors and his abuse and what was going on. And I was concerned that he had uh, mental illness issues beyond just abuse. I think there was something else going on. And he wrote to the court that he thought I must have provoked it. He questioned why I was so quiet in response to the abuse And he indicated that I probably lied. And then the judge, my lawyer was able to talk the judge into watching a minute of one of the videos. And she wrote, although it is corroborated that this was said and done, the abuser testified that he didn't mean it. So it didn't matter. No one It didn't matter. No one cared. It didn't matter. There's no one to go to to say, I'm being abused. My kids are being abused. This is what's happening in our home. Because the professionals, without even meeting with me, and only meeting the charming abuser, just deny it and say, nope. This didn't happen. And even though it did, he said he didn't mean it. It's horrifying. In order for our culture to shift, we must hold accountable the media to how they report on violence and coercive control in relationships. This includes questioning the language they use, who they interview and why, what assumptions are hidden behind the words and headlines, and the underlying biases that need to be exposed or addressed. Media education and accountability will need to be a part of the solution. Uh, What needs to happen with family court is uh, there needs to be education because it was clear that the judges 
and anybody that was court appointed or any therapist court appointed or not court appointed, they're not educated in abuse. I know that it's a, it's an old subject. I shouldn't say it's a new subject. It's something that's been going on for a long time. But as far as defining what abuse is, not only physical abuse, but coercive abuse, financial abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, obviously the judge and the people who are appointed to this are not educated. And if they are, they're ignoring the education. There's something to do with patriarchy. I do believe there's something to do with the father's rights groups that are funded by the government to keep father's rights, but there's no funding for women. And there's more women, as we know from Joan Meyer's study, there's more women that are losing a hundred percent custody of their kids because they reported abuse. This is a problem with society it's not only in the United States, it's worldwide. And it has to do with women's rights. It has to do with equal rights. It has to do with human's rights. And if we're going to move humanity forward, we need to acknowledge that some people are abusive and we need to help eradicate the abuse. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.